a normal app and other ways of doing that are, are still there. Um, we do just want to that we have the uh, uh, Wednesday night men's group uh, that's uh, meeting. Uh, they met for the first time this last week, and uh, we, we want to encourage attendance there. And so we're going to go ahead and get right into um, uh, the service. So we're continuing our series on heroes of faith. Last week, uh, you remember Dusty talked about C.S. Lewis, one of his, if not his most uh, or biggest hero, I guess, of the faith, so to speak. Um, and this week, we're going to be talking about uh, one of mine, uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, now, this is kind of a odd thing, maybe, for some, uh, talking about a Catholic nun as uh, in the context of a hero of the faith. Um, so I have kind of a, a contrast uh, that I'd like to start with. It involves my niece. Her name is Erin. Erin <laughs> is 34 years old. Uh, she is uh, uh, an MED, uh, been teaching in the public school system around the Boston area uh, for years now. Um, she's respected in her field. She uh, has a, a nice home, uh, she drives a brand new car, um, has things, so to speak, and she's done well for herself. Um, recently, she made a decision that surprised some folks, namely moi, <laughs> um, when she made a decision to go into the convent. Um, so uh, she entered into uh, the Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa, located in central California, six weeks ago. Now, <laughs> we've heard a lot about Central California recently with the fires that are going on there. Um, so uh, this was a place that was very different uh, from where she was accustomed. She grew up in Connecticut and worked the last, I think, eight years in um, the Boston area. Um, so she was in a very different place. Um, now, the temperature in this place has ranged up to 109 in the six weeks that she's been there. Remember how bad it was a little while ago when we had the smoke fill the air that was so bad? At, I think one or two days we actually saw it rain ash. Well, it's been like that the entire time she's been there. Uh, twice the fire department came knocking on the door telling them they need to be ready to move right away. Um, at one point, it was so close they could actually see the fire coming at them. So this, <laughs> this was, talk about being tested with fire. I think this is the literal, literal de definition of that. But as I said, she was very successful. This was not somebody coming out of high school or coming fresh out of college who made a decision to go into the convent. This is somebody who had acquired a lot of things for herself. So this was kind of an odd thing, uh, that coupled with the fact that nowadays women entering into the convent has diminished quite a bit. It's much rarer. And many of the orders um, 
within the Catholic faith no longer require the nuns to wear habits, so they're not so easily identified as nuns as they once were. So this really kind of surprised everybody. Um, but um, nevertheless, she entered in as what's called an aspirant. So the first 10 days that she arrived in Santa Rosa, uh, she was um, completely uh, closed off from any communication with anybody. She had had to give up everything she owned, her car, her home, uh, all her clothing and belongings. Uh, the most vital thing she had to give up, believe it or not, was her cell phone because that was her absolute connection with everything. Um, and so she had no way to just type up an email or text a friend or call her mom. Uh, she was completely cut off from all of that. After that 10-day period, um, there was a, a celebration with all the sisters in that convent. Um, and she had reached that day when she had made the decision to become a, what's called a postulant. And um, this was the very beginning stage of becoming a nun. She uh, was given what's called a uniform, which is in essence a habit without a veil. And um, she was um, then beginning a 10-month cycle where she would be in training with the duties of uh, a nun in the Diocese of Santa Rosa. And um, at the end of this 10-month period, there will be uh, very much uh, in, in description a wedding service. She'll have a regular wedding gown. This whole idea of being married to Christ is the realization of, of what she's experiencing at that point. Um, her hair will be cut and she'll be given a veil at that point that she will have covering her head basically the remainder of her days outside of sleep <laughs> at night. Um, she'll also be given a new name. So even her name <laughs> will change. Um, so I guess this is not so uh, untypical of all the orders, the same kind of pro uh, process. So once she's gone through that wedding, um, she will become a novice or a new nun. Um, she'll go through a two-year process of um, actually functioning at, as a nun. Um, the last year of that two-year period, she'll be in complete isolation, not for 10 days, but for a whole year. <laughs> At the end of that time period, she'll make her initial vows of uh, poverty and chastity and obedience. And then at the end of that uh, time period, she'll make her final vows, which will be at the six-year point of when she entered the convent. So I thought it might be helpful in the context of what we're going to be talking about this morning to actually understand a little bit about what a nun is. Somebody who is... Uh, contemplative, who is constantly working to be in prayer and union with Christ in all the things that she's doing uh, to actually have this experiential thing with the Lord where she feels 
she, she describes what he feels. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to give you this morning. We just want to give you this, this time, uh, Lord, that we want to seek you. We want to understand truth uh, in uh, all of the various things there are to learn. Father, we pray what you have in store for us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes open to see you in all of this and a heart fully open to receive what you have in store for us today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Mother Teresa started with uh, a family. Um, uh, her dad was Nicola, and her mom was named Drone. They had moved about 100 uh, miles in northern Albania to a small town called Skopje, Siberia. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Serbia. Um, and uh, she was raised um, all of her youthful days in that place. Her dad was a pharmacist initially, but when they made the move, he went into construction because that was very much more profitable in the day. So they had a nice home with a guest home right next to their house um, and a beautiful garden in the middle. So it was a comfortable upbringing. Um, her mom, uh, Drone, uh, took the kids to um, um, mass every morning. Now, there was quite an age difference between uh, Nicola and Drone. Uh, he was 34 when they were married, and she was only 16. Um, all of the kids, all three of the kids, were born uh, by the time she was turning 22. <laughs> uh, so they started very early. Um, where she was very much involved in mothering and really wanting to have the full experience of loving your kids and bringing them through the faith. Dad was getting increasingly involved in politics. Um, so this was in the Balkans, the area that they were in. Um, Balkans is Turkish for mountains. And there had been war and conflict in this region consistently, dating all the way back to like 2000 BC. Um, at the current battle was between Albania and Macedonia, and uh, they, being Catholics, were in the minority. And so Nicola was, was really rebelling against a lot of the change and uh, dynamic uh, government control that was, was happening at the time. And sadly, um, it would result tragically uh, as uh, Agnes, which was Mother Teresa's birth name, uh, was only nine years old. Um, her dad was poisoned to death by the Yugoslav police. Uh, so a tragic start uh, was met, however, with her mom's uh, resilience in being able to um, find work that was profitable enough to sustain them in that home. Um, and so she continued to grow up in the church. Now, uh, she was very involved in the youth group that she was in. And, um, you know, was just meeting with those same kids on, a, a, you know, multiple times weekly and so forth. There was at one point where uh, two Jesuit missionaries who had been teaching in Calcutta um, came and spoke about 
this amazing experience they had with these children in India. Um, and it lit something of a spark uh, with Agnes. And um, <laughs> I kind of relate to this. Some of you may remember uh, me talking about my experience in uh, northern New York State um, at this monastery where the mission of Oblates um, were speaking about their experience with um, uh, uh, missions and working with uh, the poorest of the poor. And uh, I spent two weeks there, um, and I had that same kind of spark. Uh, well, Agnes's response to this was that the only problem she had was she didn't want to be a nun. <laughs> and I remember at 12 years old, the last thing I wanted to do was be a priest. <laughs> so um, I, I just was kind of captured by the notion of that. Um, she began uh, to converse uh, in letter form with these missionaries and became friends with them. Um, she also began teaching uh, catechism to the youngest kids in youth group at church. Um, then through um, their um, uh, youth group, she learned of these uh, Sisters of Laredo. It was an order from um, Ireland and they had been sending uh, nuns to uh, India to teach. So when Agnes was about to turn 18, she had this calling in her life, and uh, she felt that it was very strong and very clear, and she had this picture of India in her head, so she knew that that's what she wanted to do. Sisters of Laredo would be a good, good option for her. So a short time later, just after she turned 18, she was boarding a train um, and um, leaving um, for Ireland. She made the initial part of the trip with her mom and her sister. They could only go about halfway. Um, and um, that would be the very last time she saw any of her family members for the rest of her life at that point. Uh, she would be so far away at that point that she wouldn't have the opportunity to see them again. Um, and so she studied um, at the Laredo Covenant for just a very short time, uh, two months in fact was all. And on October 28, 1928, she left for the seven week journey to Calcutta. Now, when she uh, arrived, India was in turmoil. Um, just prior to her getting there, uh, the British um, were um, uh, in India investigating the idea of uh, India's government, uh, and that sparked riots in the streets. And there was fighting and war, and, and uh, it became pretty difficult. Um, she was going kind of right into the center of that in Calcutta. Her first in assignment was in the Intali neighborhood in Calcutta, uh, where she would be teaching geography at St. Mary's High School for girls. Um, 
While she was teaching there a few years later, uh, she made her primary vows with the Sisters of Laredo, and then in 1934, uh, she made her final vows at uh, Darjeeling uh, Convent. Uh, She was 23 years of age at the time. She loved the religious life. She loved being able to pray with the sisters and teach the children, especially more than anything, she loved teaching the children. Um, So when she was 27, she actually became the principal of St. Mary's. And that's where she got the name Mother Teresa. Now, Teresa was her, uh, the name that was given to her at the convent. Uh, So that became her new identity. But Mother Teresa came with her being the principal of that school. Uh, Both the convent and the school, however, were commandeered as World War II was now breaking out. It was about 1942. And the British commandeered those those facilities uh, for war purposes, which meant that they had to go to much lesser, much smaller, more insignificant facilities. And that became really, really hard on her. And at the same time that was going on, the Great Famine hit that area. And uh, devastatingly, two million souls were lost to that famine. Um, This was creating something of so traumatic experience, it would have been hard for anybody to work through this. Um, So um, she maintained being grounded with her prayer and with her teaching. Um, She stayed at St. Mary's for 17 years. Um, And it was approaching the end of that time period when India was finally able to declare its dependence, independence. Um, and so she became a citizen of India. But that independence came at a great cost because India and Pakistan were then split at that point. Now, <clears throat> if you can picture this, it was really hard for me to get my mind wrapped around this, but six million people when that country split, got up and moved. Half of them from India to Pakistan, the other half from Pakistan to India. They were identifying with their their base. And if you can imagine Calcutta being right in the middle of this, it meant that hundreds of thousands of people we're now walking through an already extremely overcrowded city. So food scarcity became such a critical issue. And with all the rioting and everything else that was still going on, that starvation made things even that much worse. And here she was trying to figure out how she was going to feed her 200 students in this school. But somehow uh, she was able to work through this season. And... Um, Finally, uh, she was able to get to a place where um, the order uh, that she was uh, with uh, really insisted that she take a break. Uh, She was to have this retreat that she was supposed to go back up to Darjeeling and have this time where she could just rest. 
On this train ride to Darjeeling, she had what she called uh, a second call. Um, and she called it more of an order. <laughs> um, but she says about this calling that she quite literally heard the voice of God. And she called it the voice. And this started a time for her where there was an actual time of conversing um, that lasted a whole season. Um, she was to leave the convent that protected her or that provided for her and that cared for her that she was accountable to. And she was to go out among the poor and live outside of a convent, outside of an order. Um, and uh, this was something that was uh, going to need permission, um, potentially from an archbishop or even the pope. Uh, this was uh, uh, something that just wasn't done at the time. So this process is called exclaustration, um, where a nun uh, lives outside the convent uh, and is associated with no order. And up to that point in time, it was unheard of in the Catholic Church. Never happened. Um, so this would require uh, permission. Now, her spiritual advisor was a man named uh, Father Van Exum. And he was completely in. Uh, he believed that she heard the voice of God, she, uh, that she had this calling, that it was genuine. And although it was extremely radical for the Catholic Church to go in this direction, he was bought into the notion. But she still had to get through this archbishop named Archbishop uh, Perrier. Um, he imagined this sole nun working on the streets of Calcutta where all this war and all this rioting and all this extreme poverty was going on and that she would be all alone. And it gave him extreme anxiety. Um, so this process of getting permission would be a real struggling point for her. It took two years to go through this process. She wrote this amazing series of letters to this archbishop where she was extremely impassioned. And uh, some of the heartbeat behind this woman really came out in these letters. And um, I'd like to just read a couple of short excerpts from one of those letters to give you kind of a sense of what this was. As she writes to the archbishop, I am ready to do whatever I am told at any cost, ready to go now or wait years. It is for you to use me, to offer me to God for the poor. Um, people call you the father of the poor. Your grace, let me go and give myself to them. Let me offer myself to those who will join me uh, for those unwanted poor, the little street children, the sick, the dying, the beggars. Let me go into their very holes and bring their broken home the joy and peace of Christ. I know you are afraid for me. And then later on, and listen to this identity she has with Christ. It is his longing, his suffering, 
on account of these little children, on account of the poor dying in sin, of the unhappiness of so many broken families. I feel so terribly helpless in front of it all. I, little nothing, long to take away all that uh, from his heart. Day after day, hour after hour, he has asked this question. Wilt thou refuse to do this for me? I tell him the answer is with you, as she's talking to the archbishop. No pressure there. Um, finally, um, in July of 1948, word came from the Pope that she was approved to embark in this uh, exclustration. Um, again, it was the first time in the history of the church that that had happened. Uh, now, she had to begin this ministry without having a clue of how she was going to do it. Um, she didn't know where or how she was going to live, what was going to sustain her through this process. But she was certain of the calling, and so she went blind faithfully into this um, uh, situation. Um, it was there that the sisters of Laredo said goodbye to her. Um, but they um, gave her what would be her new habit, this uh, white uh, saris with the blue trim. And this would, be the, um, this would be with her identity for the rest of her days on earth. Um, when she first started, um, she wanted to um, get a little bit of nursing skill. So she went to the city of Patnos in India, where she spent four months just getting some basic skills. And then off to Calcutta, uh, she went. Um, when she first arrived there, she stayed at a place called St. Joseph's Home for the Poor. And um, she began her ministry in this neighborhood called Potjili. Um, it was the poorest of the poor in Calgary, where um, streams of sewage uh, were on the streets. The smell so horrific. It was hardly tolerable. There were still rioting and, and fighting and things going on in the street. And so she would go there and gather these little children in the safest place on the streets that she could find. And she would begin to teach them um, basic reading and writing and hygiene. Um, and her act was so genuinely full of love these kids would come back to her day after day after day, and the numbers began to grow and grow. She was only into this work for a couple of months when she got a little surprise. Um, one of her students from St. Mary's came out and wanted to join her. Uh, her name was Sabashini Das. Um, Mother Teresa called uh, the two of them the Little Society. Uh, not long after, another St. Mary's student came, and another, a very short period of time, just like within a, a month, this started to grow very quickly. And then a medical student who had roots to her earlier time at St. Mary's also came. And so um, the Little Society, they called them, started to grow and grow. Um, there was a, another woman. Her name was Jacqueline Dedector. Um, I'm not going to have time to talk about her role in all of this uh, very much because of time this morning. But suffice to say, 
she was the most important person in Mother Teresa's life. Um, uh, she joined her in the field, not as a nun, but she dressed in the Indian attire, which was similar to the Sardis. Um, and she uh, wore the same rustic sandals um, and uh, did the same exact kind of work. And they did have this opportunity to work together uh, until uh, she got uh, deathly sick. And Jacqueline was uh, forced to have to go back uh, home. But they uh, communicated with each other uh, closely throughout the ministry of uh, Mother Teresa. So um, with postulants now arriving, uh, Sister Agatha, um, as she was named, that's Sub uh, Sabashini Das, that first girl, um, entered into uh, becoming a nun uh, with her, and that was her first. Um, her spiritual advisor, um, uh, Father Van Exum, put an advertisement out in the paper in Calcutta explaining what was going on there. And they were able to raise funds that way. And by the time she was there just one year, they had already opened a school. Um, by 1953, the order had grown to 26 nuns um, in Archbishop Perrier, um, advanced the money for them to buy a three-story building and a number of smaller buildings around it, which became their convent. And within a matter of months, they actually filled it. Um, in uh, 1954, a year later, uh, she began to call or began to accept lay people into the ministry. Well, this was a turning point because these would become missionaries that would number in the thousands and even tens of thousands. Uh, so that really greatly expanded the ministry. Uh, about her personally, um, most people don't know this about her, but she was quite a poet. In fact, her business card read this. Jesus is happy to come with us as the, the truth be told, as the life be lived as the light be lit, as the love be loved, as the joy be given, as the peace be spread. <laughs> um, and uh, even more than being a poet, she was very much a politician. <laughs> now, she hated politics, let me, let me say that. But when it came to speaking uh, and lobbying for the people that she loved and the people that she cared for, she was aggressive, if not shrewd. <laughs> um, one thing she never did, ironically, was proselytize. Um, her love was deliberate about meeting people where they were, regardless of who they were, and that the love would be God's love for them, that it would be genuine, and that there would not be a condition for it, that it would just be freely given. Um, so she wasn't about growing the Catholic Church but she was about uniting people with God. That was very important to her. In 1960, she left India for the first time in 35 years, and she met with uh, the Pope. Uh, she had a request. She wanted the mission, missionaries of charity to be directly under the Vatican, directly under the Pope. Um, 
This was also unprecedented. Um, she was all about doing things that hadn't been done before. Um, and it would become something that would take a long time uh, to, to, to actually occur. Uh, this was a difficult season for her as well because she was feeling the pull of doing this from a global standpoint. So uh, having asked that of the Pope uh, in this waiting period, she began to crisscross the globe um, and started to meet with heads of state and dignitaries and kings and queens and so forth and really started lobbying for help with those that she was trying to serve. Um, back in Calcutta, she was still operating the multiple children's homes, the home for the dying, the leper colony, and by then she had schools all across uh, India. Um, increasingly, Mother Teresa saw the need for priests. With all the boys and all the young men that she was working with, she really felt like priests needed to be involved. And this poor young man named Brother Andrew emerged. <laughs> Um, almost overnight, he was placed in charge of this fledgling order of priests called the Brothers of Charity that would explode in size, uh, in size almost overnight. Uh, it worked side by side with uh, the sisters. Mother Teresa increasingly began to, separate, uh, to feel separated from God through this time period, which was really strange. You would think as things were just getting so much bigger and the ministry was expanding, she got to this place where she felt entirely separated from God. Now, I think most uh, people that kind of look at her story ascribe this as kind of a depression, maybe even perhaps a clinical depression. I'm not so sure I see it that way though I don't have the clinical expertise to really decide that for other than opinion's sake. But understanding what she was going through seemed to be part of God's plan, which is the way she reconciled it in her head. But in that reconciliation, it didn't really make it easier for her to go through this dark time. She wrote many letters to her spiritual advisor, um, all of these were just clearly documented. I've read most of them. Um, and the depth of what she was going through was really deep. I'd like to just read one of them, um, if I can, so you get kind of a sense of this dark period that she was going through. As for me, uh, what will I tell you? I have nothing since I have not got him, whom my heart and soul long to possess. Aloneness is so great. From within and from without, I find no one to turn to. He has taken not only spiritual, but even the human help. I can speak to no one, or even if I do, nothing enters my soul. I was longing to speak to you in Bombay, um, yet I did not even try to make it possible. If there is hell, this must be one. How terrible uh, it is to be without God. No prayer, no faith, no love. The only thing that still remains is the conviction that the work is his, that the sisters and brothers are his. And I cling to this as the person having clings to the straw before drowning. And yet, Father, in spite of all these, I want to be thankful to him 
um, to spend myself for him, to love him, not for what he gives, but for what he takes to be uh, at his disposal. I do not ask him to change his attitude towards me or his plans for me. I only ask him to use me to teach and to help my sisters and brothers and, a poor, uh, to, uh, and our poor to love him. How beautifully the sisters and brothers love God, how much they try to live up to whatever he gives them through me. She added in a separate note, <clears throat> at the incarnation of Jesus, um, became like us in uh, all things except sin. Um, but at the time of the passion, he became sin. He took on our sins. And that was why he was rejected by the Father. I think that this was the greatest of all sufferings that he had to endure. Uh, the thing that he dreaded more than the agony in the garden, uh, whose words uh, of his on the cross were the expression of uh, the depth of his loneliness and passion, that even his own uh, father didn't calm him or didn't claim him as his son. Uh, that despite all his sufferings and anguish, his father did not claim him as his beloved son, as he did at the baptism of John the Baptist and at the transfiguration. You ask why? Because God cannot accept sin, and Jesus had taken on sin. He had become sin for us. Um, do you connect your vows with the passion of Jesus? Do you realize that when you accept the vows, you accept the same fate of Jesus? This was what was going on in her mind uh, throughout this time period. And she was gravely affected by this darkness, which coincidentally stayed with her the rest of her life. These letters came forward uh, throughout that entire time. Yet through it all, the ministry was growing at a very, very fast pace, even faster than Mother Teresa could have even imagined. Uh, they worked the streets and the rail stations, now working with men and women. Uh, in 1964, uh, Pope John Paul VI came to meet in Bombay uh, with her. Following that meeting, months later, he, uh, she got the long-awaited response uh, from that pope that the missionaries of charity would be placed directly under the control of the pope and authorized Mother Teresa's work globally. This was a one-of-a-kind situation. Again, this is not something that happens. Um, from that point forward, new houses sprung up quickly at every part of the globe, uh, most of them opened by Mother Teresa herself. Uh, she was in her mid-50s. Then in 1968, Pope John Paul VI called her to Rome to found the missionaries of charity in the congregation there. Um, she was often described as a living saint, although she herself referred to the funding um, that she received throughout the process of running this ministry as a sheer miracle, one right after the other. God's hand of provision was on everything that she was doing, even at the pace that she was growing. Um, in 1969, though, there was 
a miracle that was actually ascribed to her. Um, the usual uh, stoic Malcolm uh, McGulridge, who was a journalist, bought a film crew um, to see Mother Teresa herself. Um, he later wrote that at the Calligate home for the dying, the love that pervaded the rooms was luminous, like the um, uh, uh, halos artists have uh, made visible in their paintings around the heads of saints. While attempting to do the film, the camera operator was adamant that the filming was impossible as the rooms were much too dark. Uh, Muggleridge decided to try anyway because he had just taken all this expense to move this crew over there and he thought this film was vital. It was vital. Astonishingly though, he reports, the room was bathed in a particularly bright and beautiful soft light. I am convinced that the technically unaccountable light is in fact the kindly light by the hymn of the same name. His documentary and book um, are public record, uh, both visible even to this day. Um, after initially begging for food on the streets of Calcutta, she was now working globally and working to move children into foster homes uh, worldwide. Now she won many accolades for all the efforts of her day. Uh, the National Peace Prize of India, uh, she was the first recipient of the Pope John the 23rd uh, Peace Prize, and many, many others. In fact, she was criticized for accepting national awards to aid from heads of state with poor records in human rights. But she responded, this is interesting, if you are working for peace, then that lessens war. If I get stuck in politics, I would stop loving because I would have to stand by one side and not the other. The Nobel Peace Prize came in 1979. Professor John Sanis, the chair of the committee, said there could be no better way of describing the intentions that have motivated their decision than the comment from the president of the World Bank, the former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, when he declared, Mother Teresa deserves the Nobel Peace Prize because she promotes peace in the most fundamental manner by her confirmation of the inviolability of human dignity. When she retired after 53 years in 1979, the order numbered more than uh, 4,000 nuns operating in 517 homes with over 70,000 missionaries connected with it. Since the early 60s, uh, Mother Teresa gave herself entirely to being identified with Jesus and the poorest of the poor. At age 85 years of age, uh, she um, restated that she was still uh, working in this darkness that she talked about. Um, from Mother Teresa herself, she wrote in her final days, if I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light for those in darkness on earth. That journalist, Malcolm Muggleridge, wrote 
In a dark time, she is a burning and shining light. In a cruel time, uh, a living embodiment of Christ's gospel of love. In the godless time, a word uh, dwelling among us full of grace and truth. For this, all who have the inestimable privilege of knowing her and knowing of her must be eternally grateful. Mother Teresa was one of my heroes. Can the worship team come up? <laughs> 